0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. I remember being in grade 11 at school, being asked out of my class, being taken in a police car by my dad's colleagues, not knowing what the hell was going on, asking, in the end, did someone die, you know, because I, I actually couldn't figure out what the hell am I being fetched in a police car. And in the end, it, it was, you know, someone in uniform basically telling me while I'm sitting on the back seat of a car, it's your dad, your dad has been killed.
1: This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 51, Officer Down the murder of Leslie Silliers. Today's episode is sponsored by the movie, Every Breath You Take. I don't know about you, but I cannot remember when last I've been to the movies. Even pre-COVID, I feel like I just never take the time to do it, and it's actually something I miss doing probably because I also miss popcorn and blue slush puppies, but that's a story for a different day. I've decided though that that is changing this weekend, because a movie that has seriously piqued all my interests is being released on Friday the 16th of April, and I am definitely going to watch it. Every Breath You Take is a psychological thriller. Huge tick mark for me. Starring Casey Affleck as a psychiatrist whose patient commits suicide. The tragic event, which he did not see coming because his patient seemed to be doing really well, sends his life into a spiral when he feels sorry for the woman's grieving brother and brings him home to meet his wife and teenage daughter. Let's just say that was not a smart move. I'm going to link the trailer in the show notes here, And I have absolutely no doubt that this movie is a perfect fit for true crime South Africa listeners. And I've got two free tickets to give away. One lucky true crime South Africa listener is going to be watching this movie for free with their closest true crime buddy. If you don't yet follow the show on social media, I suggest that you do, because I'll be putting out all the details there. I think it's time we started enjoying the things we used to again in a safe way. So if you were wondering what date night was going to look like this week, I highly recommend you start it by watching Every Breath You Take. Every Breath You Take is distributed by Filmfinity and will be at cinemas nationwide from the 16th of April. A huge thank you to Every Breath You Take and Filmfinity for supporting the show. I would ordinarily talk about our Patreon and PayPal here, but today I'm going to move that to the end of the show so that we can get into the case. Don't forget to listen out for your shout-out as well as some new ways that you can support the show at the end. I first heard about this case on a Facebook page for the suburb I live in. Roxanne Van Eck posted a plea to my community in regard to the impending parole release of her father's murderer. Roxanne was trying to get as many statements and objections as possible together to present to the parole board that would be considering the parole of the man that murdered her father. Roxanne's dad, Leslie Cilliers, was a police officer in Table View in Cape Town when he was murdered in the line of duty in 2003. My husband and I completed the forms that Roxanne needed to add to the objection but I knew that I could do more than that. Roxanne's story was one that needed to be told. She is a perfect example of how violent crime sends ripples through families and communities for decades and generations after the event. The story that Roxanne has to tell also highlights a few important points about our justice system and although she has worked hard to get her dad's story in the media's limelight, I couldn't help but notice that none of the media articles really covered the real issues here. Yes, they highlighted Roxanne's plight and the confusing place that is so often our justice system, but none of them really told us who Leslie Silliers was or how the decision that his murderer made made so deeply affected the lives of so many. I had the great pleasure of chatting with Roxanne Faneck, and you will hear her story in her own words in this episode. So let's get into episode 51, Officer Down, the murder of Leslie Siliers.
0: The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show
1: notes. Leslie Silliers was born on the 7th of December 1964. Childhood friends would describe him as mostly introverted, sometimes naughty, but always someone that you wanted on your side. Roxanne says that she was amazed at how many people called her dad their best friend. But that was just how Leslie was. He made everyone he was around feel like they were the most important person in the world.
0: My father had been in the police all his life, well, all his adult life. He went straight into police college after school and then joined the police force He met my mom in his first few years on the police force. She was also a policewoman. She was only in the police for a short short number of years because then I came along.
1: Leslie and Tyra Saliers were married and Roxanne was born soon after. Family photos that Roxanne has since shared show a smiling, happy family. Leslie always seems to have a twinkle in his eye. I can imagine him being a bit of a joker and generally a cool person to be around.
0: My father was was such a humble person. You know, he he had he had a very um unique kind of sense of humor, but he wasn't he wasn't the loudest person in the crowd. You know, he was the more reserved person, but he was one of those people who, you know, to know to know him was to love him. There wasn't a single person that I can remember that disliked my dad in any way he was always helping wherever he could so many people have reached out to me to say oh your dad was my best friend and it's 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 funny for me because it's it's just like that's exactly who he was like you know the way he treated each person led them to believe that they were his best friend you know because he treated each person as you or I would a best friend um, going out of his way to help whatever whatever it was he was very involved in the community um outside of just you know like serving as a police officer he got involved in community projects children were very dear to his heart so he set up a little creche um in the noon which is an informal settlement settlement here um near tableview um just because the kids had no place to go you know and he and he saw that and he there were just so many things and i've heard so many stories you know of the community reaching out to us just to tell us the impact that that my dad had on them you know whether it be a crime that happened and that he you know maybe there was this one lady that told me there was a robbery and that he had been the first to respond, which, yes, was part of his job. But then after that, you know, he checked in with her and her young daughter, you know, monthly, making sure that they got the the counselling that they needed and that the daughter, I mean, she was young. She was like, I think, five years old, that that she just got so used to my dad, like coming around and checking in. And in the end, she even... When she had to talk at school about um, a hero, she asked my dad to come in, you know, and she said, like, this is the policeman that that basically saved my mom and I from a bad man, you know, the robber, because they were able to apprehend that guy. And I mean, that's a story my dad didn't even, you know, that he didn't even come home and and boast about, or you know. It, For him it was just part of his his daily thing um you know just helping people as much as he could and there are so many of those kind of stories that we've we've heard about and it just showed us you know the type of life that my dad led inside his job but also you know outside of 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 just the family man that we knew you know there was so much more
1: going on leslie celias had formed his life around his community He was a policeman, but he was much more than that. Let's face it, being a policeman is just a job. But for some, it's not. For some, like Leslie, it's a way of life. He was a revered police officer and had been offered promotions on many occasions. But as Roxanne would explain, accepting those promotions would mean that he would have to move to a desk job. He would spend less time in the community he loved.
0: You know, my father had plenty of opportunities to, you know, move up in the ranks in the police, and and basically be put in an office. And yes, he was an inspector at the time that he that he was killed. But he chose not to actually take up the positions that he could have had um, sitting in the office because he wanted to be out there. He wanted to be making a physical impact. You know, he didn't want to be dealing with just the paperwork side of things and he and didn't want to be office bound, if I can, if I can say it like that. You know, his, his role was out there with the people on the ground.
1: With his wife having also been a police officer, the Salia's family was acutely aware of the dangers that Leslie faced every day when he went to work.
0: Every day that my dad went to work, You know, I remember as a a young child, you know, my my mom used to worry when my dad used to work night shifts because we always thought, you know, if something was going to go wrong, it would be in the middle of the night. You know, that's that's kind of what you and no one expected that it was going to be like 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock or whatever it was on a Wednesday morning in broad daylight. You know, nobody expected that that was going to be the day that that my dad would be killed on duty.
1: On the 23rd of July 2003, Leslie Silliers was on day duty and as he started his morning on a beautiful Cape Town winter's day, almost 40 kilometres from Table View, in Atlantis, a predominantly industrial and partially residential area up the west coast, a storm was brewing. Eight men had set out that morning with a very different day in mind. ...than the one Leslie had planned. The group of eight and Leslie could not have been more different... ...in lifestyles, backgrounds and intentions. But on that day, their paths would converge with deadly consequences. One news article from the Time reports that Tableview Police... ...had held an early morning raid that day in a nearby informal settlement where they arrested five men linked to a local hijacking syndicate. At around 10 o'clock that morning, Atlantis police put out a call that the Standard Bank in their area had been robbed and the perpetrators had fled up the N7, which is the main stretch of highway connecting many areas just inland of the west coast in Cape Town. Police knew that the bank robbers would have to leave the N7 somewhere and thought that one of the likely places would be the Durbanville off-ramp, which would take them back to Potsdam Road and into Dunoon, the sprawling informal settlement. Leslie Silliers and his partner were one of the first cars from Table View to respond to the call to create a roadblock on Quartermann's Kloof Road. As Leslie and his partner neared the spot where they would begin their lookout, a car matching the description put out that morning appeared over the crest. With eight men in the vehicle, Leslie would have known that he and his partner would be totally outnumbered, so he motioned for the car to pull over, perhaps hoping to make it appear as a normal traffic stop and buy some time as he waited for backup to arrive. The vehicle, containing Frank Lachwayo, Zolani Kumalo, Tsetso Manoka, Lucky Mchongo, Lazarus Pakati, Temba Pakati, and two others, slowed to a stop. Leslie walked to the passenger side of the vehicle, and his partner approached the driver. They asked to see the driver's license. A licence was handed to Leslie from one of the passengers in the rear of the vehicle. There are varying accounts of what happened next. Some sources say that the officers instructed the men to get out of the vehicle, and that is when the shooting started. Others say that the men began to alight of their own accord, leaving one laying on the floorboards of the vehicle with an AK-47 aimed at Leslie Siliers. We still do not know who actually shot Leslie Siliers. His family were never given answers about that. But we do know that within seconds of the car being stopped, one of the men, armed with a semi-automatic weapon, fired 52 bullets into Leslie. He died almost immediately on the side of Clough Road. The road on which the men were pulled over, and ultimately on which Leslie Saliers died, is long and winding. It twists between the wine farms of Durbanville, and in true Western Cape contrast, one minute you are surrounded by office blocks and highway, and the next it's just expanses of land as far as the eye can see. After killing Leslie, the group of men fled into the neighbouring fields, Backup police vehicles were arriving, though, and the perpetrators were pursued. Six of the men would be caught that day. In the beginning of this episode, you heard Roxanne talk about having two policemen fetch her at school that day. She was seventeen years old. As the news spread throughout the community, each one of Leslie's family and friends would receive the news that would change their lives.
0: I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember each of my family members on that day. I, I My uncle, um, my dad's brother, he's a sales rep. I remember that he told us, you know, he was in the car, he was driving, and he heard about a shootout on Contamon's Cliff and that a, police, a policeman was killed. And that he still thought to himself, shit, that could have been my brother. And then it ended up being his brother. That's how he heard it. I remember my mom. Tot- I mean, she's, she's never been the same again. Her life will never be the same again. I remember my grandparents. Um, they're, still, they're still here today. And I mean, they still miss my dad. No parents should have to bury their child at any age. And my father was only 38 years
1: old. The trial of the men that were involved in the bank robbery and the murder of Leslie would take four years. During the trial, two of the men escaped. They would be apprehended much later, and a new trial had to be set for them. None of the men admitted guilt. They all claimed innocence, even though there were witnesses and evidence that was clear-cut. They just refused to give Leslie's family even that small mercy. As I mentioned earlier, it was never determined who fired the AK-47 that day. And in a way, maybe it doesn't matter. It could have been any of them. They were all equally guilty, and the judge found them all guilty of the charges against them. Frank Tlatuayo was just 18 years old, when he was involved in this crime, he was given a life sentence. 23-year-old Zolani Kumalo was given 66 years in prison, as was 26-year-old Zesetsu Manoka. The remaining three of the group that were found guilty at that time must have somehow proven lesser involvement, as 26-year-old Lucky 35-year-old Lazarus Pakati, and his brother, 29-year-old Temba Pagati, were all given 16 years in prison. It was at this time of sentencing that another injustice would be wrought upon Leslie's family. No one explained to them that three life sentences would be served concurrently. The family believed that they would never have to worry about most of these men again, and that they would be in prison For the rest of their natural lives. Sadly, that was not the case, but no one ever told the victim's family that. For Roxanne and the rest of Leslie's family, his death became a punctuation mark in their lives. There was life with him, and then there was life after him, and all the things they now had to go through without him.
0: I'm now thirty five, and I look at it like I feel like I've got so much life ahead of me still. You know, there's so much I still want to do. And then I look at my dad and I think, Yo, you know, his life was just cut short at 38. You know, he never had that chance to do more. And, and it would have just been him giving more. You know, he was that person that would have just given so much more had he had a longer life to do it in. The gap that he has left in our lives, I, I can't even begin to describe it. I mean, he couldn't wait for me to get my driver's license. I had my learners and I was riding around like on a on a scooter in the few months before he was killed. And he was so excited for me to get my driver's license to be able to drive a car, you know. And when I got my license the next year, all I could think of was how nice it would have been to be able to take him for a drive. A couple of years later, I got married. I got married really young, actually at 21. The boyfriend that I had through my teenage years, you know, he was the guy that I married in the end. And um, we're still married. So <laughs> just, it was, was a good call. But my dad knew him, you know, and, and they got on really well. My mom walked me down the aisle. And I just would have loved to have my dad on the other side of me. You know? And that's something that was stolen from us. That experience, that memory is something that we'll never have. You know, my son is now almost 12 and he never got to meet my dad. I named him after my dad. Um, so he's Leslie. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he's heard the story so many times. Um, of who his grandfather was, one of his grandfathers, because unfortunately my husband's dad also passed away only about a year before my son was born. So he hasn't got either of his grandparents. You know, he knows exactly who my dad was. He knows the stories. He knows, um, you know, when, when he needs to write at school about like a hero or a role model or something, Most times it's my dad that he ends up writing about. Um, and this is a person that he's never met. But yeah, and and you know, when you talk about the ripple effects through the generations, it's exactly that. You know, you've got my grandparents who are missing a son, you've got my mom and all my dad's friends, um, you know, that knew him, and then you've got me as his daughter, you've got my son as missing a grandfather that that was never in his life. I, I just don't think, you know, when people act so senselessly, that that even crosses their mind. You know, they're not just killing a person that's gonna affect someone for today. It's, it's
1: for years and years to come that's just stolen. And this is one of the things that I always try to demonstrate when I talk about violent crimes. And certainly one of the points I want to bring across with Leslie's story. It's the ripple effect that continues on through multiple generations of families because of that one decision that someone made. And here we haven't even accounted for Leslie's colleagues who watched their friend and co-worker be brutally gunned down or those that attended the scene afterwards and perhaps tried to save his life, although he was already gone. What trauma did they leave Quantumans with that day? How did that end up affecting their families for years to come? Roxanne, her family, and the community of Table View had to move on with life. In that, they had no choice. And of course, that is what Leslie would have wanted. But they thought that they were doing that in the knowledge that his murderers, Would never again walk the streets. They were wrong. In February 2021, Roxanne van Eck was contacted by the Department of Correctional Services. They were asking whether her family would be interested in participating in a victim offender dialogue with Zolani Kumalo. And that is when she discovered that the reason for this request was that Kumalo had become eligible for parole. The Salir's family and all of Leslie's friends and colleagues were suddenly faced with the fact that the justice they thought they'd received for their immense loss was not actually the same justice that they were going to get. And this brings Roxanne to the point where she had to choose. Were they going to shrug their shoulders and let the system take its course? Or were they going to fight? Roxanne chose to fight.
0: The Department of Correctional Services contacted me on was mid mid Feb um, this year, and they wanted to speak to the family of the victim. And I told them, okay, they can speak to me. A lady came out. She came and she saw me to explain to me that there's this bod process that that they run that's very victim-based or victim-focused if I can say that so basically it's a victim-offender dialogue where they encourage the victim's families to sit down with um, the offender be able to ask whatever questions they have you know we're very two-minded with it on the one hand you know we've received advice that you know, that's a block that then the offender gets to tick as having been done and that gives him a better chance at getting out sooner because then it would seem like he's offered his apology and been forgiven. Not that we, I don't think we will ever be in a state of mind where we will be able to forgive what has been done. Yes, we've accepted it. Yes, we're not bitter about it. Um, You know, we can't live our lives, you know, <sighs> My dad would have wanted us to to carry on, you know. And after 18 years, of course, we know nothing that's going to happen now will ever bring my dad back. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I'm going to readily just say, okay, I forgive you, because I do believe it was a cold blooded murder. And that us as law abiding, tax paying South Africans shouldn't need to walk the same streets. As people that get let out far too early, you know, even if even if they have rehabilitated, even if they've done had good behavior in jail and all of that, there was still a consequence for their action. And they were sentenced to multiple life sentences for a reason. So as the family, we just don't understand how. The Department of Correctional Services can even consider an early parole for any murderer. You know, just what was the point of a four-year trial? What was the point of the judge issuing the harshest sentence that he could at the time if it was just going to end up being diluted down to this? It's very, very frustrating. And we are just one family on one case you know this these are considerations that are made every single day and you know I think there are a lot of families that would just accept it as this is what it is and you can't do anything about it but for us uh, I, I plan to to fight this as hard as I can and I don't care if it takes all my life to do it my family is broken by my father's death It's 18 years on, but it's 18 years that was stolen from us.
1: So Roxanne now found herself trying to navigate a system she had no tools to deal with.
0: Right now, it's Kulani Kumalo that that is being considered for early parole. I know whatever happens with him, it's going to be a ripple effect on the other guys that are being held. They've been held all over the country. They're not in Cape Town anymore. Kulani Kumalo, I believe, has been held in East London. Two of the other guys are in Pretoria. Correctional Services haven't been able to tell me where the other guys are. So there's just so many questions that I have at the moment. And it it just seems like such loose ends, to be honest. I, I struggle to find the words, you know. When my father passed away, I tried to be as strong as I could for my family because everyone was broken around me. I'm very OCD like that. Like when there's when there's a crisis or a trauma situation or whatever, I don't break down into tears. I don't. That's not who I am. Um, I go into this mode of getting things done. You know, like what needs to happen, what is the next step, what is the, and that was me in in this the situation and you know i remember my mom my grand. everyone was so worried because they thought oh my word you know at some point i'm going to crack and i didn't but you know to this day i'm still in that process of you know this is now the next step and it's it's exhausting it's you know i've i'm trying to do this outside of my my working hours because you know i can't mix my work with this you know i'm a human resources person for for a hotel and and we've been affected so badly from you know covid south africa's extended lockdown it's hectic and we've got so much so much to do on that side that i can't be dealing with this in be- and this isn't the kind of thing you can just slot in in between do you know what i mean like it's something that that takes a lot out of a person and even though I'm maybe the one doing these interviews and, you know, speaking to the media when they call and, you know, doing those kind of things, it's taking a toll on my whole family because it's not like they just cut it off and say, oh, Roxanne's handling it. You know, it's, it's, I'm giving them the feedback. It's, It's like pulling everyone through 2003 all over again. Because all the memories are coming up again, you know, all, when, when we have to submit photographs, when we need to look up the newspaper articles, when we need to, you know, it, it's like bringing up all these, the wounds are like completely open again. They said, you know, time will heal and that's a load of crap because it's been 18 years and it still feels like yesterday.
1: Listening to Roxanne and seeing how much effort she's put into this process so far, I couldn't help but think that this is just one of the offenders that was involved in her father's murder. There are seven others. Are we really going to re-victimize this family another seven times in this way?
0: And that was one of my questions for the Department of Correctional Services. I asked them, you know what happens to this person is it linked in some way because it's the same case you know and I was told that yeah the files are linked so whatever because what I was asking was the victim statements that we submitted and the community statements I I said am I going to have to do this for every every one of them that that goes under consideration because how can I expect our community to do this that many times you know um, and the the feedback I got was like, no, it's all linked. It will go into one case file and it will be like basically copy and paste um, across all. But to be honest with you, I have so little faith in this whole process because the lady that came out to see me, what she needed to do was make contact with the family, let the family know that this consideration was taking place. Um, find out if we would be willing to undergo the VOD um, process which as I was saying we're in two minds about it because you know on the one side I do not have an issue sitting across from this person and telling him exactly how I feel but if it's with the intention of giving him a sense of that he's been forgiven then it's a waste waste of all our time because that's not going to happen you know I was told by them that you know it, it would give me an opportunity to ask any questions that I might have I don't have any questions I mean what am I supposed to ask like like why did you kill my father I know exactly why because you were caught in a, in a tough spot where you needed to get away and, and my father was standing in your way so it was easy easier for you to shoot him you know so it's it's not like the guy sat at home and planned out to come kill my dad you know that it, it wasn't premeditated in that way but The minute they packed those guns, they knew that they planned to use them on anybody that got in there. And that's what gets to me, that it could have been anybody. And, you know, these people that are going to be making this decision, they should also think, you know, besides the fact that my father was a policeman serving and protecting his whole adult life, these people need to consider this could have been someone close to them. It could have been someone standing in the bank that day, you know, it could have been their parents, their child, their sister, their brother, their husband, their wife. And how would they feel about that? You know, (laughs) because it's easy when the shoe is on the other foot, when you're just looking in, you know, and you're not actually in it. But yeah, the, the lady from the Department of Correctional Services, I mean, she sat with me, she had a long chat with me and she asked me if there are any questions that I had and I had questions to this day I mean she's tried her best to answer them but she's she's got to send everything through to a representative from the region where Kulani Kumalo is being held and that guy I'm so sorry to say but he's he's left so much to be desired You know, I've sent emails to him to make sure that these two hundred plus statements that were submitted um, by the lady that saw me to him. Can he confirm that? Has he actually put them in the file, or has it just ended up in some mailbox that's that's and a block is going to be ticked to say, oh yeah, there were victim statements submitted. You know, does it does because for me it's about respect for each and every one of those people that took the time to write that statement for my for their, their voice to be heard, you know. So that was one thing. I just wanted him to confirm that he's received it. Um, another thing was, you know, I want the judgment document with the sentencing on it because when I look at the Safley website, which is supposed to have all judgment documents that go through the um, High Court, this judgment document isn't on there.
1: So not only has the Silias family now been told for the first time how Leslie's murderers' sentences actually work, but they are also having to fight for information. The Departments of Correctional Services cannot tell them where all the offenders are even being held, and no one can give Roxanne a copy of the judgment. As you know, whenever I cover a case, I also look up the judgment on Safley, as it often gives a lot of detail about the crimes. In this case, I searched all six offenders' names that I had, and the name of the victim as well, and the judgment is not there. Now that's not entirely strange, because sometimes these don't make it to the website, but the fact that no one is able to guide Roxanne in actually finding a copy of the judgment is very concerning. She would eventually be emailed a copy, but it was cut off and didn't have much information on it at all. It was at this point that Roxanne reached out to the community that her father had so diligently served, and it would become glaringly apparent what a major impact her father had had on so many people.
0: He made changes in in small ways, but in ways that impacted our community. And it's evident to me because, I mean, it's now been 18 years, but people still remember my dad. People that I never knew have emailed me, WhatsApp me, called me, and and have told me these stories of, of their memories of my dad. And, you know, when I put out a message on Facebook to say, look, this is the situation, you know, one of the guys that was involved in my dad's murder is now being considered for an early parole after 18 years, um, even though they received three life sentences, which are supposed to be 25 years each, which do run concurrently and not um, consecutively, which is another issue altogether. Um, but, you know, it's been 18 years. It hasn't, the first life sentence of 25 years hasn't even passed yet. And when I put this, out there on Facebook to say, look, if anyone wants to, you know, we, we were asked by the Department of Correctional Services that if us as a family want to put together um, victim and secondary victim statements, um, basically peeing against it, then we could. And then there was also an option if there was anyone from the community, if they would like to put those statements forward as well. So I put out a message on Facebook just to say, listen, if there is anyone... And I mean, we had over a 1,000 people actually respond within a space of, sure, less than two weeks. I had over a 1,000 responses just asking me, how can we help? What can we do? And of that, you know, a lot of people wanted to share their their support, wanted to share their stories, their memories. And that was just so touching for us as a family, just to to know the impact that my dad made in, in people's lives as a whole. And I mean, we ended up submitting over 200 um, statements to the Department of the Cor- Correctional Services. Just you know, people that had taken the time to actually write out you know a page in support. But it, it went so far beyond you know those 200 statements. It was you know the other 800 people that emailed, that that phoned, that sent me messages, that continued to to want uh, to message me and just want to know what the update is
1: and Roxanne has now also put a petition together to further strengthen her cause
0: you know then that led me to to start a petition on change.org because for me i just felt you know i need i need to do something as a family we need to do something just to to stand up against this unjust justice system
1: There are people that say Roxanne's family should just forgive and forget. People have actually gone on the memorial page that she set up for her father and told her to stop her campaign because it's wrong. To those people, I say you have a very skewed idea of what forgiveness is. Roxanne and her family are not seeking retribution. If they wanted that, they would be campaigning to have these men lined up in front of a firing squad and let them suffer the same fate her father did. But that's not what they want. They just want the judge's sentence to mean something. Ideally, they want life to mean life. But if that can't happen, they at the very least want these men to serve the 25 years that they were supposed to for her father's murder
0: i just i just want justice that's it i want these guys to rot in jail i want them to spend you know if they were going to be 85 coming out 85 years old coming up then i'd say okay fine your life is over you know you what are you really going to go do at 85 but at 45 this person could easily come out and just do it all again you know and and then and then i think like in jail he's a police killer He's like a god in there. (laughs) He's living a good life. You know, someone that's able to kill a policeman, they are treated by the other prisoners like a god. And if he wasn't already part of a gang, he would have been recruited to be part of a gang. Now he comes out onto our streets. He's not going to have money. He's not going to have, you know, the things that he's used to. So He's going to have to make a plan to put food on the table, to have a roof over his head, to to afford these kind of things. And it's going to be easier just to go with the gang, just, you know, do whatever they... And he's going to end up, if not in the same situation, in a similar situation. And I don't want to feel like we did nothing, that we just stood back and, and didn't fight this and let him come out and then he kills someone else because then that blood would pretty much be partly on our hands. And I wouldn't wish what our family has gone through on anybody else because it cuts so deep. I feel like these men don't deserve any sort of leniency. I haven't received any feedback to tell me that they have wanted to apologize or that they're remorseful or that they because in court they denied everything I mean all the guys were caught on the day Um, the the court proceedings took almost four years to wrap up the trial during that time two of the guys escaped because they weren't shackled um, when going to court and the trial had to be redone for them as well. So, <laughs> so it, was, it was a very long procedure for something that seemed so clear cut, you know. And obviously no one admitted to who shot my dad. So they all had firearms. It could have been any one of them. I just look at it like, you know, this, these guys were young. I mean, they were in their early 20s. So if they get out now, or even after 25 years, they're getting out in their 40s, you know, still in their prime to go and make a life for themselves. They can still get married, have kids, you know, find a job. I mean, while they've been in jail, they've probably been upskilling themselves, you know, and they will still have a life when they come out. My dad never had that, you know, he never got to see his 40s. He never got to do all the things he, he still planned to do. We never got to have those memories with them. So that's why I say, you know, these guys got maybe 75 years or three life sentences, but because they run concurrently, it works out to 25 years. And then with this fun judgment, um, judgment that came out, Um, in 2019, basically that says that if it's a crime um, that was committed before October 2004 and the person has received life sentences, that basically if the crime happened before October 2004, uh, they can be considered for early parole as early as 12 years and four months after going to jail. So that means a murderer that murdered someone before October 2004 could quite possibly just be back on the streets with us after 12 years and four months. So this, these guys have been in jail now for 18 years. So I don't know if that's not going to be looked at like, okay, they've done their time, shame left them out. Um, and it's it's devastating to us as as the family of the person that was actually killed that.
1: In her quest for information, Roxanne has now managed to find out who the state prosecutor was on her father's case, and she has made contact with that person. The prosecutor in question had to try the same case twice, because of course two of the offenders escaped, and had to have their own trials again when they were rearrested. Interestingly, the prosecutor, despite this having occurred 18 years ago, still clearly remembers Leslie Celia's case, and is now going to see what they can do to assist Roxanne. Really, Roxanne Van Eyck now needs all the help she can get, because she's been given a contact name and number for the person in the region that Zolani Kumalo is being held in, and although she's tried for months now, she cannot get hold of him. She has sent multiple emails and made continuous phone calls. Her emails are never responded to, and his phone is never answered. So she has no idea where they are in the process, and she also has no confirmation that the 200 statements that were sent through are actually placed on the offender's file.
0: You know, and this isn't information that they need to make up. This is information that should be on file. I'm asking for things like, where are the others being held? What are their prison numbers? Where is Kulani Kumalo's consideration in the process? Because is it something that's going to be for a parole board in a month's time, in six months' time, in two years' time, in 10 years' time? Like, I have no no, And everyone's asking me what what's happening, what's happening. And I have no idea because they're not telling me where it's at. And I've made it so clear that I want to be at the parole hearing and I want to state our case, for him not to be granted parole early. I have those 200 plus statements from our community and family. I have a petition on change.org, which has over 2,500 signatures currently. You know, the media has covered it from all angles. For me, it's about, I need to make contact with the decision makers, you know, the, the people that are actually going to be making this decision. and my first point is to reach the guy that the Department of Correctional Services here has been sending everything to. I'm um, at a dead end because he's just not answering phone calls, not responding to emails. Now the lady that has has come to see me, she's leaving at the end of the month, so she has given me the head of Cape Town's Correctional Services, um, the contact number there. So uh, I've mailed him now yesterday to say here's my list of questions, please can you make contact with the guy in the region where Kulani has been held, and can you get me answers?
1: And Roxanne realises too, that this is bigger than just her family and Leslie's murder.
0: You know, for me, this is one case, but if there's 1,200 lifers in the system, that means there's 1,200 families in the same situation. And Everyone seems to just let it happen, you know, or or think that 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 their voice isn't enough, but if done together, it's not the voice will be loud enough not to be ignored. You know, I've written letters to the president, letters to, and I'm not expecting an answer, you know, I know that that's not where it goes, but you've got to make enough noise in order for someone to turn their head and take notice. And and I want this to not be an easy decision. I want it to be something that they seriously, that when this case comes up, that they're like, oh, that case. You know, I want them to, to know that it's not just gonna be one individual family that is heartbroken if they let this guy out. I want them to know that, that there's a lot of support behind this and there's a lot of people that are not going to be happy if this guy is let out. I mean, I don't want to worry that this guy's walking the same streets as my child. I don't want, want to worry that these other guys are, are just going to now see, oh, he got out, now it's our shot, you know? I mean, I, I believe that whatever happens with this, guys, it's going to set the tone and the precedent for the other guys. Because they're all part of the same. They either all get out or then none of them get out. And it sets a precedent in in general as well, you know. There could be another murder and this comes up and then it's like, oh, but Kalani Kumalo got let out.
1: Roxanne Van Eck is her father's daughter. I never knew Leslie Silliers, but I feel like I met him when I spoke to Roxanne. This is exactly... Leslie stood for. He stood for justice. He stood for sticking up for the downtrodden. I don't know if Roxanne realises just how much her father's voice speaks through her, but to me it is so clear. There are 1,200 lifers in the system, and there are 1,200 Roxanne Fun X out there. Daughters, sons, Wives, husbands, that suffered the greatest of losses, and need to know that someone has their back. Leslie's is not the only case that has been impacted by the Van judgment. You would have heard Zibith Hansen discuss the three categories of lifers in my interview with her. It's a complex ruling, and one that is controversial to say the least. Two other infamous cases that spring to mind have also been affected by the judgment. That is the murder of Lee Matthews. Her murderer has recently had his parole considered and is waiting for a judgment from the minister. The other case is the Sizzlers Massacre, in which nine young men were slaughtered. That offender is also now available for parole.
0: I'm not holding on to bitterness. We are not walking around angry um, every day. We are not allowing this to consume our lives, if you know what I mean. We we accept the fact that nothing is going to bring my dad back and I'm not going to go get ugly about it because it's not going to bring my dad back. But at the same time, I'm not going to turn a blind eye and sit in 10 years' time and know that this guy's out because I did nothing. I want to be able to fight it as hard as we can and if he gets out, then he gets out, but at least we have, we don't have it on our conscience that we just did nothing and we're hoping that what we're doing will at least make a dent in the way that things work because I'm not just fighting for this case, I'm fighting for our laws to be reviewed, the way things work. So, First of all, the whole concurrent versus consecutive serving of of sentences, Um, because it's ridiculous that murderers, rapists, armed robbers, I mean, serial murderers even, that they they get 25 years and then, then they can serve the rest of the time on a parole basis. And I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't believe in the whole, oh, they'll be checked up on every week. We don't have... The resources to be able to keep up with that maybe the first year or two and then what you know and secondly I don't believe that parole should be considered before at least one life sentence is served and I'm not just talking now about this case I'm I'm talking about cases in general like how is it that these these hard criminals are able to look at 12 and a half years, 18 years, 20 years. I mean, it, it almost makes it worth it to take the chance to commit the crime because they know they have a good chance of getting out early. And then the third thing is just life should mean life. <laughs> you know, and it's as simple as that. And this whole thing of us not having enough space in our cells, in our prisons, that's crap because they need to make a plan. You know, when when we don't have other things, then a plan is made. So why, why should we have these guys on our streets any earlier than they should? Otherwise, they should just cut out the whole trial and a judge making a decision and all of that, because it doesn't mean anything in there.
1: Roxanne also expressed to me that she is well aware that putting herself out there also puts her and her family at risk because she doesn't know how the families of the offenders will react to her pushing to keep them in jail. I know though, that she really has no choice. If she was anyone else's daughter, maybe she could turn a blind eye, but this is what Leslie Silliers stood for.
0: That's why I say, you know, I have to fight for justice because it's what my dad lived for, but it's also what he died for.
1: And she wanted to send a message out to True Crime South Africa's listeners as well.
0: Please, you know, um, I'm very thankful to your listeners, as I said, in advance for they are able to go and read the petition, sign the petition and share it.
1: Leslie Siliers was the epitome of what we would like every police officer to be. On the memorial Facebook page that Roxanne set up, his colleagues share memories of their time working with him. A cross was erected on Quantumman's Clough Road at the site where Leslie lost his life, serving the people of Table View, and his colleagues still visit there. Leslie Ciliers was also a father, a husband, a brother, and a son, and through Roxanne's words, it is devastatingly clear what an impact his death has had on all of their lives. Two years after he died, the creche that Leslie helped to set up in Dunoon was officially opened in his honour. And that is another part of his legacy. Every child that is kept safe there is one less child left to fend for themselves while their parents go out into the community to earn a living. I don't think that it is possible to ever quantify the impact this one man had on so many people's lives. But if we take anything from this, I think it should be that one person can make a difference. Roxanne has taken up her father's flame. She is now fighting for something much bigger than her or her father's case. And if the story has touched you at all, you can join her in that fight. This case is not just about Leslie Cillier's murderer getting out before he served his time. It is about the re of families by a system that is not set up to serve them. I cannot explain to you how angry it makes me that Roxanne has to do this. She should not have to do this. She should not be stonewalled and ignored and have to dedicate her life to getting the answers that should be given to her without question. We need two things to happen here. First, we need to be the voices that Roxanne spoke of. She needs to know that we are all behind her. You can do this by sharing her story and signing the petition that I will link on social media. Secondly, the Department of Correctional Services needs to make this right. And by making it right, I mean someone in a decision-making capacity needs to contact Roxanne Eck and give her the information she is asking for. If anyone in DCS thinks that this is going to go away, I suggest you think again. I understand we are under-resourced and overworked I get that but surely in the space of three months you could take the time to answer one email this is not going to go away and we are not going to stop and now it's not just Roxanne's lone voice you will hear it is the deafening roar of many South African citizens step up and get it done. Leslie Silias did not deserve to die on the side of the road while he was serving and protecting his community. And his family does not deserve to be re-victimized. Leslie's whole life was about uplifting those who had been victimized. And his voice was not silenced by eight men that day. They just made it louder. Thank you for listening to episode 51 Officer Down The Murder of Leslie Silliers. Before I go, I'd like to thank our new show supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Christelle Donovan, Moyenine Nell, Sharnae Jones, Michelle byers Duplessis, Madeleine Rotenbach, Langa, Yolandi Dean Wedderspoon, Teresa Skoltz, Melissa Walters, MC Engelbrecht, Wayne Dodd, Angela Mulder, Tracy Harold Snyman, Ariella, Madeleine Doman and Marinda Bonsack for signing up to support the show on Patreon, as well as Carla De Silva for her donation through PayPal. Thank you so much, everybody. Your support really does go a long way toward keeping the show running and I'm really grateful for your help. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. Keep in mind that we do also have two new ways to support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the audiobook of the Krugersdorp cult killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can head over to King Online and use the discount code TCSA10 for 10% off your health and beauty needs. As always, Any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help keeping the show growing and improving. Don't forget about the giveaway of the two free tickets to Every Breath You Take. I'll be sharing the details of the giveaway on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.